you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do, I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 3. Revelation 3, we're going to pick up Church of Philadelphia, beginning of verse 7. Some of you are praying that the chiefs will minister to Philadelphia (laughs) later today, minister with many points. Um... Last weekend, uh, campus-wide, I believe we baptized over 80 people here as a part of our church family. And uh, we, with stories from Reach Church DeSoto, worshiping with us this morning via our live stream, baptisms occurring in the venue service. Um, and Reach Church DeSoto, they got four more baptisms lined up today. So Reach Church, I know you're watching with us this morning. We're excited for you, what God is doing there. But um, these are exciting times. We're so grateful for you as a church family and your faithfulness to the Lord. Well, Revelation 3, 7 through 13, Church of Philadelphia. This week, I, uh, I saw a video of a coach, and this coach was uh, talking about one of his players who was complaining about another coach that played favorites. He said, this coach plays favorites. And this coach looked back at that player and says, here's what you do. Become one of his favorites. Amen. He said, I'm just going to tell you, we, we all play favorites. He said, this, this player was, you don't play favorites. He said, oh, yeah, I do. Here's what you got to do. Become one of my favorites. And he went in to talk about how you become one of coach's favorites. You show up every day. You show up on time. You show up early, and you're a competitor, and you don't complain, and you do your job regardless of how much playing time you get. And he went on to talk about those things. As we've been studying seven letters of seven churches, we got one more left after this week. But as I was looking at the Church of Philadelphia, this is just my personal opinion, I believe that the Church of Philadelphia was Christ's favorite. I think they were his favorite. What's interesting about that, they weren't a big church. Fairly small in number. In the world's eyes, not great in power. In the world's eyes, inconsequential. But in my opinion, they were Christ's favorite. And the question that ran through my mind, I want to be very careful here because we all know that Christ loves all of his churches equally and he loves his children equally. But the question that went through my mind is how do we become one of Christ's favorites? And I think we can ask that question not on just a corporate level as a church, but we could ask that question on an individual. How do we become one of Christ's? How do we become a church, a believer that Christ loves to use? And I think Philadelphia gives us a description of that this morning. So let's look together. Let's begin by reading. Let's pick up in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're the Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he'll not go out from it anymore. 
And I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, as we come before your word this morning, Lord, we realize that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And I believe that if our eyes were opened, we would see a battle and a struggle taking place right now in this room. And Lord, my prayer is that you would aliven your word and through the power of your spirit make it take root in our hearts. I pray and ask for the one that might be here today or watching online who doesn't know you. Lord, I pray that they would see your glory and the beauty of your love and your salvation and they would trust in you. For those of us that do know you, Lord, I pray, protect us from the evil one. Make our hearts attentive to your word and to your spirit. Move in us today and change us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You'll see there in verse 7, Christ as he does with each one of these churches, he introduces himself and he describes himself in three important ways. What's unique about this is that this is the only letter in which Christ describes himself and he doesn't use terms uh, from chapter 1. So while this is not technically new material because he draws actually from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, it's new material to these churches. And so he says to them that, that, that I am, the first way he describes himself in verse 7 is that I am holy. I am holy. Uh, the preferred name of God in the book of Isaiah is the Holy One of Israel. And here, Christ describes himself as the Holy One. He takes the name, the preferred name of God and the prophet of Isaiah, and he applies it to himself, and it's a claim to deity. Christ is saying, I am God. I am pure. There is no error in me. There is no weakness in me. I am completely set apart. I am holy. I am God. And then he says, not only am I holy, but he says here, I am true, meaning I am totally reliable and trustworthy, that Christ is not limited in his knowledge or wisdom. Christ cannot lead us astray. Every word of Christ is totally trustworthy and true. And then third, he describes himself as the one who has the key of David. He says here, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. That is a quotation from Isaiah 22, verse 22. You probably have a reference to that in your Bible. But in that situation, Hezekiah is replacing a person who has authority over the palace with a new guy named Eliakim, his choice steward. So he replaces an unfaithful man with a man who is faithful, who is holy and is true and is trustworthy. And now this new guy, Eliakim, he has the key. He's given the key, meaning he has all the authority. And he determines who gets in and who gets out, who leaves and who comes. 
And Christ takes that and he applies it to himself. So when Christ says, I have the key of David, he is saying that I am God's choice Messiah. I am his chosen Messiah. And all authority, I have the key, all authority has been given to me. So when it comes to Messiah, the Savior of the world, God makes the choice. And God says, Christ is the Messiah. And Christ controls entry into the kingdom. That he determines who gets in. See, that's the way that you can be when you're God. That there's not many ways to God. That you, you don't get to determine. God determines who gets in and out. And God says there's not many ways. God says there's only one way, and it's through this man, my son, Jesus Christ. God said in Psalm 2, the nations are raging. They don't want God. And God says, but as for me, I have installed my king on my holy mountain. You may not like him, but you don't get to pick and choose how you get into the kingdom. God says, you come this way and this man in whom my justice and my wrath is appeased and paid for. Jesus would say, I'm the way, the truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. In Acts 4.12, it says, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So I want to be very, very clear. It's going to sound a little bit like I'm beating a dead horse here. And that's because I am. Because in a day of confusion, we need to be very clear on this this morning. This is not my opinion. So don't get mad at me. This is God's word, and God says there are not many ways to God. There's not many ways into his kingdom. There is one way, and it's the man, Jesus Christ. And so you'll see here, Jesus says, I'm holy, I'm true. I'm God, I'm trustworthy. And he says, I have the authority. I have the authority. I control who gets in. And he's very strategic in describing himself in this way because apparently, as we'll, we'll see here more clearly, the Jewish elders who controlled the local synagogue, whom Jesus calls here liars, they're pretenders, they were preventing these Gentile believers from entering the synagogue and participating in worship. Because in their mind, these Gentile believers, they don't meet the requirements. That's great, you're trusting Christ, but you've got to do all this other stuff. And we're in control is what these Jewish elders were saying. And you don't get in. You don't meet the requirements. And can you imagine how discouraging that must have been to these, this small group of Gentile believers? And by use of this introduction, Christ is essentially saying to these Gentile believers, don't you worry about what those guys think because they're not in control. They don't have the key. They're liars and pretenders. Christ is saying, I am God's chosen Messiah. I have all authority. I have the keys. I determine who gets in and who doesn't. And this is, again, a good reminder that salvation and entrance into God's kingdom is through faith in Christ alone. And the beauty of this is once you get into the kingdom, there are no second-class citizens. There's no... Uh, business class and coach. You ever go on a flight and you have to walk past those people? Why do they do that to you? They make you walk past those people that have all that leg room and then your seat's back there between two people and you're like this. You know, in God's kingdom, there's only one way in. Faith in Christ and you get in. 
No business class, no, no JV, no varsity, no middle class, no rich, poor. We are all children of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now to this church in Philadelphia, wasn't that some good news? They've been just told, you can't get in. You're nothing. God says, don't you worry about them. You trust in me. I have the keys. My opinion's the only one that matters. And then what, as you, you move forward, what we really get is a description of this church in Philadelphia. A description, in my mind, of what it means to be one of Christ's favorites. So look at this. Look at verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Christ says, I, I, I put an open door before you. And I believe this here is referring to an open door of service. In, in verse 7, when it talks about who opens and no one shuts, I think it's talking about a door of salvation. But here in verse 8, I think we're talking about a door of service. It's a door of opportunity for gospel work. In other words, Christ is saying to this church, I'm giving you a great opportunity. I'm setting before you a job and an opportunity that's beyond what you could have ever have imagined. So again, think about this in the perspective of the church of Philadelphia. They're a small group of people, not large in number, uh, in accordance to the world's eyes. They don't have much, not many resources, not much influence. And they were probably thinking to themselves, we'll never do anything great for God. We just got a few people here and we don't have much. We'll never do anything great for God. You know what God says? God looks at this group, this small group of people. I'm about to give you an opportunity that's beyond what you could imagine. I'm about to open a door of gospel ministry to you. And let this serve as a good reminder to us as we, as we seek to participate with God in our church and in our individual lives that no matter how bleak the situation, no matter how big the, the obstacles, no matter how limited our resources, there is no door that God can't open for service to him. We are not limited by our circumstances. We're not limited by our resources. We are only limited by the greatness of the God that we serve. And he is able to open doors that no one can shut and to shut doors that no one can open. So Christ says, I'm opening the door of opportunity and service. And he says, I'm giving it to you for two reasons. Two reasons I'm giving this to you. First, he says, I'm giving it to you because you have a little power. He says, I'm about to give you this huge opportunity, an open door of service and ministry because you have a little power. Now, that's the opposite of the way we think because we don't give opportunities or at least great opportunities. When, when the game's on the line, you don't put in your worst player. You know what I mean? You go for the guy who's strong. You go for your best guy. God's gonna open a great door and he says, I'm gonna give it to you because you have little power Exact opposite of the way we think. But, but here's the point. Strength in the church, strength in God's eyes, is not measured in human terms. Not measured in human terms. When we do job searches, we want to see the resume. We want the accomplishments. We want to know, what have you done? God wants to know who you are. And so strength in the church in God's eyes is not measured in human. You remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.26? I love this. He says to the Corinthians, who by the way were, it appears to me, somewhat arrogant people that he was preaching to and teaching. 
He says, remember your calling, brethren, that not many of you are wise, mighty, or noble. But he says, God has chosen what? He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the things that are wise, the weak things of the world to shame the things that are are strong, the base things of the world, the despised things God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are. And he goes on to say, so that no man may boast before God, so that just as written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul looks at these group of people in in Corinth and he says, look around the room, folks. You're not a collection of the world's brightest, smartest, and most beautiful. God has chosen the weak. God has chosen the foolish. Now, why would God do this? Does God just delight in weak foolishness? Why does God choose the weak and the foolish? He tells us, and Paul tells us in that verse, or in that passage, verse 29, I just read it. He said, so that no one may boast before God. Listen, God is not concerned with our success as a church. He's not concerned with our success as individuals. But I'll tell you what he's really concerned about. He's really concerned about his glory. And he delights in using weak and foolish people so that his glory will radiate from his church. So that when the world sees a great movement of God within that church, there will be no mistaking it for anything other than the greatness and the glory of God. So Philadelphia, getting a great opportunity. Because you don't have much physical strength in earthly terms. But then he tells them what they do have, and this is the key. This is the key. The key to becoming one of Christ's favors. Here's what they do have. They have faithfulness to Christ. He says, you have little power, verse 8, you have little power, and you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Isn't this great? God, God doesn't ask that much of us. He doesn't ask us to be incredibly handsome. Amen. He doesn't ask us to be incredibly intelligent. Amen. He doesn't even ask us to be that creative or clever. He only asks us one thing. You be faithful. And faithful in two areas. He's specific here. Faithful to his word. This book and obedience to it must become the absolute necessity of your life. One of my favorite verses, Deuteronomy 32, 47 When speaking of the word of God, it says, this is no idle word for you. It is your very life. You remember Jesus, he, after 40 days of prayer and fasting in the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan. The first temptation Satan brings to him after he hasn't eaten for 40 days. And by the way, is he hungry? You bet he is because as a man, he knew hunger. Hadn't eaten in 40 days, Satan shows up, says, hey, you hungry? Just turn those stones into bread. And could he have done that? Absolutely, he could have. But you remember what Jesus says? Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus says, I don't have to eat, but I have to obey God. You want to be great for God? Get to a place where you'd rather starve to death than disobey God's word. That's how bad we got to cling to this book and the truth of it. If you depart from this book, that's the beauty of this. If, if, if you live according to the word of God, there's great joy. There's great peace. Doesn't promise you a bunch of earthly stuff. Never makes that promise. But listen, here's what we know. God has rigged this world, hasn't he? And there's a way to live it correctly that brings peace and joy. And it's according to his word. 
And if you live it, and by the way, if we're, we as a church, if we proclaim it and preach it and make it the bedrock foundation of everything we do, there's joy, there's blessing, there's opportunity, there's peace. But on the other hand, if you don't keep it, it is to your own detriment. You will, if you live in disobedience to this book, you will stub your toe on life. Do you know that? It's like walking around the dark. You ever get up in the middle of the night and try to go do something? In my house now, it's dog bones, you know? You step on a dog bone in the dark. You got to turn the light on because you never know where a dog's going to leave his bone. And they hurt, by the way. But you try to navigate this life without the illumination of the light of God's word, you're going to step on some things that are going to hurt you. You know, what did uh, Psalm 1, blessed man, is, uh, the, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night, for he'll become like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in seasons, leaf does not wither, and whatever he does he prospers. But then what does it say? But not so the wicked. They'll be like chaff. This book is the key obedience to it. And this is my prayer every week. For all of our ministries here, whether it's the, the smallest of children to the oldest of adults, everything we do here must be founded upon the truth of God's word because quite frankly, that's all we have to offer. That's it. Every week, that is my prayer. God, help me to rightly and correctly divide your word. Because I'm going to let you in on a secret this morning. I'm a knucklehead. You don't believe me? Ask my wife. Ask my boys. I'm not some bastion of great wisdom. You can ask Pastor Jim. He hangs around me a lot. I do some pretty knuckleheaded things every now and then. I do. I mean, you want to know that some, my dad's sitting in the pew out here. He knows everything about me. You think he's here because, boy, I bet that Chad's got some great wisdom for me this weekend. My dad's here for one reason. Whether I'm in this pulpit or not, he's here to hear the word of God. And so just know that. That's all we have to offer. We simply proclaim the truth of God's word. So my prayer every week is that somehow that we would proclaim myself or Pastor Sam or Pastor Brian or Pastor Kyle that all we would do is try the best we can to proclaim and illuminate the truths of God's word and somehow the Holy Spirit of God would move in a person's heart so that they're drawn towards Christ and all of us begin to look and live more like him. And if we do this, Christ says there's an open door. Then not only faithful is to his word, but faithful to his name. You've not denied my name. This is so important. Most famous denial of Christ's name is who? Is Peter denied the name of Christ, the presence of a little servant girl. You and I are to be fully loyal. And I think it's important here to the name of Christ. You have not denied my name, the name Jesus. You know, you know why I think that's important? Because I think it's becoming increasingly, we, in an effort to be non-offensive, oftentimes we don't like to mention the name of Christ. We'll, we'll talk about God. And we'll talk about our church. Those are good things. But you, you want to find out where somebody's at? Start talking about Jesus. Now you've gotten specific. Now you've gotten exclusive. And the further we go down this road, we must be a people who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God and salvation for all who believe. I've said this many times. Lenexa Baptist Church has never saved anybody. 
So praise God that you're inviting people to church. I want you to. But you want to give them the most important news? Tell them about Jesus. Jesus saves. You've not denied my name. These are the divine measures of a church's strength. God measures church's strength not on the basis of attendance, not on the basis of a balance sheet, not on the basis of the intelligence or the greatness of the staff. God measures strength on the basis of faithfulness to his word and his son. And the idea here is if you're faithful to me and you're faithful to my son and his name and the proclamation of it, then you'll become one of my favorites and I'll always have doors of opportunity for you. Well, look with me, verse 9. Behold, I cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. I'll make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. These are the people who cast them out of the synagogue. They're, They're false Jews. They're enemies of God and the gospel. And how do we deal with our enemies? What does Christ say here? Essentially, what he's saying, he's saying, I'll take care of the enemies. I mean, the, the picture here is so plain to me. You be faithful. Let me handle the enemies. I, mean, I think the picture here that I had in my mind is David before Goliath. Just simple faith and trust in God. Not faith in his own abilities, but simple faith and trust in God. That the God who uh, delivered me from the paw of the lion, the bear, he'll, he'll deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. How about you try on some of our armor? Listen, all the armor in the world is not going to protect me. The only thing that's going to save me and defeat this enemy is the power of God. We need to realize when it comes to our enemies in this world, they will not be overcome by earthly means. They will only become, over, be overcome by spiritual weapons. I mean, think about this. These are the guys who kick these people out of the synagogue. They don't like them at all. And Christ says to them, they're going to bow down at your feet and they're going to acknowledge that I have loved you. That kind of radical transformation only occurs by the power of God. So we're going to be faithful to Christ and his word. And will we have some enemies? You bet we will. The church has always had enemies. We will always face opposition. But the high idea here is you be faithful and let me be God. Let me take care of those people. Let me protect you as I see fit. And by the way... If it's to our own physical detriment, we will still be faithful. We're not going to bow. We're just going to be faithful to Christ and his word. And then in verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I'll also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And Christ here makes an amazing promise to the church of Philadelphia, and not just the church of Philadelphia, but more broadly to the faithful church throughout history, that because they have persevered, because they've remained faithful to Christ's word, you will not endure the hour of testing that's coming. In other words, these people have already faced a multitude of tests. Their their faith has already been tested. And because they've uh, persevered, because they've already passed those tests, they'll be spared the ultimate test, that, that test that will come upon the whole earth known as the Great Tribulation. Now, let's be very clear about something here. This does not mean that the church will not face testing or tribulation. It means that our testing and our tribulation is right now. This is our hour of testing. This is our day of testing. Will we be faithful to Christ and to his word? Will we stand faithful in the midst of our day of persecution, 
trials and difficulty. This is the testing of our faith, the proving out of our faith. And and the ultimate mark of true faith and belief is what? It's faithfulness and perseverance to your very last breath. So our hour of testing is now. But to the world that has not bent the knee to Christ, the unbelieving world who is referred to here as those who dwell on the earth, it's the, the actual word is uh, earth dwellers. And when you see it throughout the book of Revelation, it's used multiple times, but it's always talking about non-believers. So those who have rejected Christ, to a world of people who have rejected Christ, there's a great day of testing coming. And the unbelievers in that day will either pass the test by repentance and faith in Christ, because some will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, and others will fail the test because they will refuse to repent, and they will continue to reject Christ. As we're going to see as we study the Great Tribulation, the vast majority of them will reject, and ultimately they will be judged. So... As you can see from what I've just said here, because so many of you have already asked me, you're jumping the gun. You're asking me, do you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? I've already got that question a whole bunch of times. You know what I've told you? Hold on. We're not there yet. As you can see from my interpretation here, yes, I believe that God's true people who persevere, his true church, will be spared from the great tribulation that is to come. But listen to me clearly. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be tested. The reason we don't endure the great tribulation is because we're tested right now. This is our hour of testing. Then in verse 11, what does he say? I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. What does that mean? Does John interpret that to mean that Christ is coming in days or months? I'm not sure. But I think the greater picture here that Christ is communicating both to John and to us In fact, some interpreters translate it, I am coming suddenly. But the idea is Christ is speaking to the church and he's telling them, I'm on the way. I'm coming. It's a reminder to all of us that history is not just one thing after another. It's also a reminder that this world is not going to get better every day in every way. Do you understand that? That's the idea of this progressive idea that if we just had a little more science and a little more knowledge, boy, we'd bring about utopia. (laughs) And we're the most educated people that have ever walked the face of the earth. And yet we are more broken than we've ever been. So can we rid ourselves of this idea of somehow we're going to save ourselves and usher in utopia on the basis of our own intelligence and our own means? And so the the reminder of Scripture is it has a very bleak view of this earth and its trajectory. And it's always reminding us that Christ is coming. There will come a rude interruption. But we as believers, we're the people who know that Christ is coming, that he is on his way. So what is the exhortation to us? Hold fast. You know I'm coming. So don't be lax in your responsibilities. Don't start to coast. Hold fast. Hold fast to a completed word, a perfect sacrifice, and a perfect Savior. You hold fast to the simplicity of the gospel 
and the beauty of my word. You, you hold fast. Why? So that no one will take your crown. As we sang, oh, this is referring to the victor's crown. It's Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 8, when he says, in the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day and also to those who long for his appearing. <laughs> It'd be amazing. If we picked one of you out this morning, we just commended you. How good would that be? It'd feel really good, wouldn't it? If we picked somebody out from the crowd, we just commended that person publicly. Imagine, imagine giving your life away in service to Christ. Exhausting yourself in service to Christ for his kingdom good and his glory. And then one day passing away and awakening before Christ where Jesus Christ himself gives you a personal commendation and says, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, you hold fast so that no one takes your crown. And then what does he say? Verse 12, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He'll not go out from it anymore, and I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. He says, you overcome, you'll become a pillar, pillar in the temple. These were people who were, said, you can't go in the synagogue. God says, that's okay. You might not get a seat over there in that shabby little tent of a place they call a synagogue, but you know what you will have? You'll have a permanent place in my temple. That's pretty good news, isn't it? Pretty good trade. So we don't care what the world thinks about us. We know where our eternal dwelling place is. We have an eternal place with God. He says, you'll abide in my presence and you'll not go out from it anymore. In the Old Testament, the temple was something that you went in and went out of. You remember David in Psalm 27, this one thing I've asked the Lord that I'll continually seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to meditate in his temple and to see his glory. David said, I don't want to leave that place. I just love being in the presence of God. For those of us that know Christ, we know that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we also know what? That we sometimes go in and out of fellowship with Christ. But one day we won't go in and out anymore. We will dwell eternally in the presence of Christ. And he says he'll write his name on us. When you write your name on something, what does that mean? It means it's yours. He says, you are permanently and eternally mine. You are secure. And not only that, but I'll write the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. Meaning not only do we have new ownership, but we have new citizenship. It's a reminder, as Paul said, um, that our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a lot of titles in this world. Uh, Southern Baptist, Kansan, American. But the title that we hold the most dear is that of Christian. He gets our ultimate allegiance. He's our king. And then he says, I'll write on you my new name. You know what I think that new name is? We'll read on in Revelation 19, verse 12, when Christ returns and there's a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And what's that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. You see the picture here that Christ is painting this, this uh, small group of believers, Philadelphia, in the world's eyes, weak, inconsequential. 
kicked out of the synagogue, you can't come here. God says to him, it's okay. Because I'm God. I'm true and trustworthy. You can believe everything I say. And I got the keys. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You be faithful. You hold fast. And I'm making some great promises to you. That you'll dwell with me forever. You'll be my people, a kingdom of priests. With an eternal citizenship. Dwelling with me forever in my presence. Great promises. I was studying those promises at the end of this week. Did a hymn come to mind? You bet it did. You ever heard of this one? Standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest. I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord. Bound to him eternally by love's strong cord. Overcoming daily with the spirit's sword. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises I cannot fail. Listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Resting in my Savior as my all in all. Standing on the promises of God. Standing. Standing. Standing on the promises of God my Savior. Standing. Standing. I'm standing on the promises of God. Father, we thank you so much for the promises that you have made to us that we claim in our life and know, not on the basis of what we do, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That through faith in Christ, we understand that we're under new ownership We've been freed from the power of sin, Satan, and death to live under the lordship of Christ and his protection. We've been given a new citizenship, a knowledge that this is not our eternal destination. One day we will be with you forever in heaven, dwelling in your presence forever. God, if there's anybody here today that maybe they know they're under the bondage of sin and Satan and death, I pray that they would know today there's freedom in Jesus Christ. Maybe they have uncertainty about their eternal destination. I pray that they would know that they can have certainty that they'll be with you forever today through faith in Jesus Christ, that they can claim these promises not on the basis of who they are or what they've done, but on the basis of who Christ is and what he did on the cross for them. I pray that they would trust in Christ today, know him as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, for those of us that do know you this morning, that we would stand on your promises. We would hold fast to your word. We would not deny your name. We would live bold lives in the midst of a dark world that desperately needs the hope of Christ. Make us a light for you. Help us to show the world a different way wherever we might find ourselves, a group of people standing on the promises of Christ our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way Christ is leading on your heart. Maybe you would like to 
trust in Jesus this morning. The reality is though, listen, if you don't know Christ this morning, you're watching online, you don't need me. This is the greatness of salvation through faith in Christ. Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. If, if you know that you need salvation, if you know and recognize today you're a sinner and you can't save yourself, my encouragement to you would be cry out to Jesus for salvation. If you'd like somebody to help you, talk with you about that decision, we'll have pastors here at the front. If, if you would like to unite with our church family, become a member here. If you just want to pray up here, this is your time. Know this morning you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.